welcome back everybody to another episode of Overdue Rentals, the podcast where we talk about films that nobody seems to talk about anymore, even though they were all over the place when they first came out, or they were award winners, or maybe they were smaller films that maybe didn't get enough attention. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Blends Mike Reyes, somehow not sobbing after thinking about this film. Films, because we have two, we have two wonderful films to talk about today because we're gonna Doubleheader, be folks. Doubleheader, because we're gonna be joined by Siobhan Fallon Hogan, who many of you will know from I don't know how many different projects, but of course, classic 90s SNL cast member. Some people, you know, whether you know her from Seinfeld, Men in Black. I, I, it's I will the list will go on forever if I talk about every movie she's ever been in or show she's ever been in. Oh yeah. But she has now written her first feature film. She's produced it. She's starring in it. It's called Rush. It comes out Friday, August 27th. And we're also going to talk to her about her role in Lars Van Trier's Dancer in the Dark. So, Mike, for people who are interested, I don't want to to give it too much away, but Rush is a film about... I'll do the quick version. Yes. A grieving mother who is trying to have find justice after her son is the victim of a fraternity rush slash hazing incident. Now, that sounds very dour. And yes, it does. It, it's not a comedy, but does, it, it, is, it is light more so than you may think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, it, it, I, again, uh, it's something I'll want to bring up. I'm sure we'll both want to bring up in the conversation is the family dynamic in this film is very very down to earth and it just grounds everything that happens in the universe of this movie in that sort of warmth but also just verisimilitude also Siobhan Fallon Hogan has a lot of people like a, a lot of really interesting actors and and yeah. collaborators working and her on family and her family yeah and uh that's that's the one film that we're going to talk about but also since it's overdue rentals and we've got uh, I, I believe it was a, this was a rental that was definitely overdue for me. Uh, Lars von Trier's 2000 heartbreaker dancer in the dark is the story of Selma played by Bjork, a woman in 1960s Washington state who works at a, uh, fa- works at a metal fa- metal shopping factory. I am lo- at a loss for terminology, but she works in a factory. And she diverts into musical fantasy throughout her everyday life. And we basically see her move through the, uh, a chain of events that I, I, I don't want to say too much at the top of the show, because obviously we want people to go see the movie, but I'll, 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 I'll say a little more towards the end. But, but you have minor seen- spoilers within and or major depending for Dancer in the Dark. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, of course, go watch it, uh, come back, listen, or just listen through mm-hmm. and then go watch the film anyway, because it's a, it's a film that no matter what you know or don't know about it, it's gonna, it's gonna hit you like a freight train. Oh yeah, I saw the first five minutes, uh, last five minutes of this, I think it was back in the days when I would t- be taping movies off a of pay-per-view, and it's like, okay, it's like five minutes until The Spanish Prisoner comes on, oh, Dancer <laughs> in the Dark's on, okay, and then you see the ending, and it's like, ah, and I finally watched the uh, the whole film here. And you know what? Maybe this gives me the courage to finally watch Requiem for a Dream. <gasps> what? Okay. Because I've seen the ending. All right, hold up, 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 up. Stop. We're going to have this discussion off camera because I think right now, first, 
I think it's time that we get Siobhan in to the, to the store to talk about Rushed and Dancer in the Dark. Siobhan Fallon Hogan, welcome to Overdue Rentals, where there are no late fees, but plenty of chatterboxes. Well, thank you for joining us. Listen, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. As, we, as do we. Again, thank you so much for joining us. It's fantastic to have you here. And fantastic to have you here about your own scripted, produced film and starring film. Let me tell you something. Thank God we're at this point and we're, what is today? Is it, is it Wednesday? What, three days yeah. away. Yeah. Coming out on Friday, rushed, and it's thrilling. And, you know, I, I wrote it three years ago. My sister said to me, Siobhan, this is like having a baby. I said, Mary, this is like having quintuplets. <laughs> because I wrote it, produced it, starred in it, have all my friends in it, Robert Patrick from The Terminator, Jake Weary from Animal Kingdom. I called in all my chips. Is that what it's called in, in, yeah. in, in gambling? Lars von Trier, who I've worked in many of his movies, co-produced, Vivica Musaya, the director. Anyway, what would you like to ask? Well, why was this the subject for, I guess, you know, so many people are going to know you from a lot of stuff, but they're going to they're gonna think, oh, she's a comedian, you know, she does funny yeah. stuff. So why was this the subject matter that came out for your first full-length script? I have three kids. And I think most mothers will tell you in their teenage and college years, they will drive you out of your mind. My father said, I like kids, just not from the age of 15 to 25. (laughs) Now we have these things called cell phones. And so you, it's bizarre, right? Like when I went to college, your mom or dad would want to talk to you and you had a quarter and you'd line up behind the other girls (laughs) and you put the quarter in. And by the time your mother got your father, it would go ding, 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 ding. My mother mother would go, oh God, I got your father just got here. Click. And so now we have these cell phones like, hi guys, just let me know when you're in safe. And if kids are like, please back off. And they always lie. And they say like, my phone died or my friend had my phone or some stupid thing. And when they go off to college, you worry even more, you know, because you read all these horror stories about college. So the story came from me with insomnia, lying in my bed, worried and imagining the worst and talking to other moms who imagined the worst too. So this is a family from upstate New York, four kids. I have three kids. One boy goes off to college and the mother is funny. She harasses the kids. She says to the girls of the Catholic school uniforms, put your skirts down. You look like hookers. And most moms will tell you they have a little short moment of time in the, in their cars. In my case, it was a minivan. Mm. And in the movie, it's a minivan when you're, when they're driving, going to school and they're trapped. So you can like say, listen, you ought to be praying more. You ought to cut the crap. You ought to be nicer to that kid. Stop being so snotty. And, and, and this mom says, call your brother. And the kids are like, mom, leave him alone. He's in college. So you see all this humor. She prays at the beginning. She drops the F-bomb while she's praying. She is not a perfect mother in any way. And then the kid goes off to college and there's a terrible fraternity hazing incident and the faith and the humor gets her through. But this is a mom who never wanted to be in the limelight or do something extraordinary other than raising children, which is extraordinary. And when push comes to shove and she doesn't have the law behind her, as the trailer says, hell hath no fury like a mother scorned. Because 
you don't know what you would do when your kid is so wronged. And I guess my sister said, well, you have, you're a redhead and you have a psychotic temper. I guess what I would do <laughs> is not exemplary, but also most mothers could maybe imagine it and yeah. they'll see it on screen. Yes, it's it's not quite uh, Ivy League code, old sport, but you know no, it's it's, uh, it's not cocktail party material. No, even though you know we we it it really is interesting that we do sort of see that world for a little bit as as events go on. I mean, I'll still I'll dance around it because obviously we don't want to ruin anything for you no. know opening weekend or post opening weekend, but it's very interesting how your character kind of goes through all these different worlds and like it starts out as a road trip movie and then yes. turns into maybe a pulpit speech moment and then question mark. Yes. And I think what's interesting about, about it and what reviewers have commented on is that you've got this kind of every woman and mm -hmm. she's, you know, she doesn't aspire to what would be considered in society to be cool or hip or, lucky to me being a stay-at-home mom is unbelievable like if you raise your children and you spend time educating wow what a what a fabulous vocation right she never expected to have to travel far from her home or do anything out of the ordinary but to see this woman then thrust into circumstances with fancy people or fancy homes and she's like wow splashy splashy and her husband's like, what are you doing? <laughs> it is a lot like my husband and I, I'll tell you that. That's why I cast Robert Patrick. Because Robert and, I, and I've worked many, many times together. And I wanted somebody who was a lot like my husband. My husband played for New York rugby. He's a real New Yorker. There's family on the White House tab. And, <laughs> and they're like, tough, they're like real guys, guys. Robert right now is traveling cross country on his Harley. So I'm like, Robert, what are you doing? Going cross country, my Harley. Get a poster and stick it on your back. Listen, we can't waste time. Get a rush poster. But anyway, Robert's superb in the movie. Well, you're you're both superb, and I very specifically because I'm the type of person who likes more subtlety in my acting. You know, if somebody's upset, yeah, I understand. Depending on the situation, if they're gonna blow themselves outside of the box, I understand. But like for instance, for Robert, when he's going out to eat his lunch in the car and he's oh, just crying. That's my favorite. That's my favorite scene. You at the end as well. Both of you are, are do it so well. Like it's almost it's one of those things that I don't think people will appreciate, but I think larger audiences like they gotta pay attention, otherwise they're gonna miss how wonderful it is. Thank you. I think that Robert has kids. I don't think I know. Robert has kids, and I have kids. And you know, when you when you've been around the block as many times as Robert and I have you have a, a storage of emotional material to draw from. And some of it's not great. You know what I mean? Because yeah. nobody's perfect. My kids are in the movie. My son is in the movie. My daughter's in the, one of my daughters is in the movie. Um, and, and, and all my kids have driven me over the edge many, many times. <laughs> They've each taken turns. <laughs> Believe me, I drove my father over the edge. My father said, did I say this already? My, I like kids just not from the age of 15 to 25. Yeah. It bears repeating, though. It bears repeating. Yes. I mean, wouldn't it be funny if there were people like, you know when she really started to slip? Was that podcast that she did. <laughs> <laughs> she said 
remember remember Warren Beatty and, and um oh my God what was that movie Heaven Could Wait yeah. and they, they say to the they say to the butler after he's died they say what did he say just before he died well he said and they're they're like this he said I wish the marshmallows in my cocoa would melt a little faster anyway wouldn't that be funny if they're like well Siobhan really did start to lose it on that podcast no but so anyway the, the poignant parts of the movie. I think are extra, are heightened because the family was so funny, because mm. the family was tough on each other, because the mother said, come on, girls, get your skirts down. You look like hookers. Because when I leave the house with a laundry basket instead of a suitcase, he's like, Barbara, get a suitcase. I'm like, I can't, they're moldy. Like they're real. They're like, if they're not pretending to be, look, they're, they're in love, but they're not icky. Like Robert said to me, Siobhan, I always wanted to do a movie like this because there is a lot of faith and praying in it. But as I said, I dropped the F-bomb too. I'm like, hail Mary, full of grace, Lord. Shit, because I, the kids aren't awake. So it's, it's, it's very real to people that are rough around the edges, like myself. <laughs> yeah, Overdue Rentals, the downfall of Western society and Siobhan Fallon Hogan's career. Just, we're gonna put that right on, on the website. Uh, I have to tell you, you look so much like Paul Feig. Has anybody ever said that? No, and I've interviewed <laughs> the man himself. You look so much like him. Oh, that's that's the latest. That's the new celebrity doppelganger. Now I've I'm I've gotten you. I've gotten Joaquin Phoenix and I've gotten Johnny Galecki before. This is I'm and keeping Paul, Paul Feig. Paul's awesome. I worked with Paul a thousand years ago when Comedy Central first started on a on a TV show that was the Ian Patterson from um, Stranger Things. But anyway, I digress. So. Um, <laughs> anyway so the thriller element comes in you know when when the mom comes up against no one she goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the frat boys but also in it because i learned from Lars von Trier, i learned from the best from doing three films with them that the other women in the film first of all the director vivica musaya she's superb she's this danish director who came in and she ran this like a tight ship the small budget cinema our cinematographer matthias schubert fabulous sabina miliani our editor unbelievable the actresses Perry Gilpin. Yes! Right? Oh, I'm so used to her as Roz from Frasier. And then watching her in this is just this very subdued and measured sort of presence. And then even against, you know, putting her against uh, your role as Barbara, just yeah. like, you know, that you still have the energy in the room and she just really explores this microcosm so well. And she, and she, you feel that tension between she and that husband. So you could have all the riches in the world and you've got nothing. Yeah. And then Rusty Schwimmer, one of my favorites. These are Rusty and Perry I've known since my 20s. Kept in touch with them over the years. Rusty kills it. Andreas Suarez Paz, fabulous. And I won't, listen, I learned from Lars von Trier, wrote for women. And I was like, you know what? I'm writing for my friends. And it just so happened that it worked out. I'm, I'm interested to know if when you wrote it or even maybe not when planning on writing, when you're starting to actually film it, was there a part of you that had Barbara feeling that she was almost a little responsible because she, she pushed him into wanting to be part of a frat to make sure you don't mess it up. Is there any weight on her own mind that this is maybe a little bit on her? Totally. So, you know, there's all the stages in the movie. I mean, it's like, it's like there's 88 keys on a piano, right? First, it's funny, then it's this, then she's depressed. Of course, she's too pushy. I have, 
my, my, my sister said to me recently, my daughter is a reporter for the New York Post. And I was advising her about something. And my sister Megan said, now let her sift, let, let her settle on that, Siobhan. You've given enough advice. And I was like, but I was thinking, she, my sister's like, no, you're the most domineering mother I've ever met. Let her make her own decision. And I was like, oh. but it's kind of like that. The mother wants nothing more than the best for her kids, but she was, she's a little too much sometimes. Yeah. But only because she loves them so much. She doesn't know. Yeah, and even in, even in that respect, she's not, it's not the comedic extent. Like as you are bringing it back to sort of the theme of the family being very relatable and real, she is an overbearing mother, but it's not the overbearing mother you're used to on TV and movies. You still very much identify with Barbara and yes. you still, well, it's like, on one hand, you're recognizing, okay, you're, you're really asking for a bit much here. But on the other hand, it's like, could you at least just answer her and tell her the truth, please? Exactly. And she's really trying to teach her kids, like she says, you know, because this is like the snotty teen, Lily Rosenthal's fabulous to explain the snotty teenager. I'm like, let me tell you something. I can't tell you how many times I've said this to my kids. If you're pretty on the outside and ugly on the inside, no one likes you. You know, all these like quips that she has. And, and with the son, like you said, you're like, answer the phone. And just stop making her suffer because you can feel it. And we went Robert Patrick in the bed and he's like, please, Barbara, please go to bed. And then she's like, oh, could you just call him? Oh my God. You know what I mean? But, but, and I think people know, understand that because we all kind of live that way. It's like, oh, I'm not going to call, but would you call? You know? Were there any particular hazing incidents that you look to draw inspiration from because sadly uh you know you go to wikipedia you could literally find a page of hazings hazing deaths that goes back to the 1900s my mom died in march at 96 years old when i wrote this movie she said sean this was going on when i was a kid mm. i think i'm not anti-frat i'm not anti-sorority i think there's so many frat boys and sorority girls that do so much good. And that's the point of them. And, and uh, you know, to back each other up, community, community service, to have a network when you get out. Just like anything else, one bad apple can ruin the whole deal. It's more a message of if there's someone horrible in a, in a powerful position, but they don't appear horrible because they're kind of look cool and they kind of had to act and they're good looking. Like looks are so accentuated are, are so important these days because I think because of the internet, there's too much focus on what do I look like? The kids are always like taking pictures of themselves and selfies. When I was growing up, my mother was like, hey, hey. I'd be like, oh my God, I have this huge bubble. Listen, listen, listen. Don't be looking in the mirror too much. Develop your insides. You know, so I was always like, sometimes I pass the mirror and I'd be like, oh, I'd like to take a look, but I don't want to be looking at myself too much. Mm, so now we have this society where, you know, the, the, the head of the frats is extremely looking guy, good looking guy, he's cool, people follow him. But at what point do you say, I'm not following the gang. I'm not following this guy or this girl if they're cruel or if they're picking on one kid. And, and then 
if you are too weak to step away because you do want to be part of a group, then when push comes to shove and things get really bad, are you brave enough to walk away and make a phone call? Say, hey, you know, so-and-so doesn't look so good. Mm-hmm. I need to call 911. I mean, we need to, we need to get a lot braver and a lot more courageous to stop horrible things happening in every institution. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's so strange to think about it because you imagine, like, I'm not trying to defend anybody. No. But you can imagine, of course, that somewhere in somebody's mind is like, well, if, yeah, but if, then if I make that call, maybe they'll be okay. But if I make that call, then we're going to get in trouble or something like that. And not, not that that makes it okay any whatsoever, but it's like, I can't put myself in that situation. So it must be such a strange thing. But yeah, it's like, we got to take responsibility. If you get a slap on the wrist, who cares? Exactly. And you know, everything's all screwy these days because when I was a kid, the drinking age was 18. And then they switched it to 21, but you can go fight in the war and you can vote. And there's all these things you can do when you're 18, but you can't have a drink. Now, because of that, we drank beer. So beer, you know, you'd be like, well, I had, you count. I remember thinking one, two, three, I'm going home. That's it. Cause my father smells beer. I mean, I am dead in the water. So now we got kids sneaking vodka because it's colorless and you start messing with hard liquor. You don't know what you're doing, no matter what age you are. I mean, it's Russian roulette. And there's a president of a college that said to me, when that turned, that was the end because all bets were off and it became dangerous. And I said to someone recently who's, you know, into this cause and said, it's so political. It will never change. And how sick is that? Yeah. Because there's so much money behind everything is follow the money, follow the money. And also you just look at these prestigious fraternities like skull and bones. And it's just, that is the, the center of American power has come from there. And like so many prestigious people have come from these organizations that it's just so ingrained in America. Yes. But I do think again, that there's great people that have come out of them. So you don't want to, you, you know, yeah. I think we've gotten in the habit as Americans is like, if something bad happens, let's just wipe that one, that tradition mm-hmm. away. We can't do that. We have to go after the bad people in them, I think, and allow the institution to be what it was there for, you know, to do community service, to be a brotherhood for goodness, to be sisterhoods for goodness, and 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 not let, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of these kids, and the but the tragic horrific things that are happening are upstaging and they should upstage and people got to people got to start doing the right thing and being good people well it seems like we've we've also met this weird crossroad where younger and younger generations are you know to to put it quote unquote you know now the woke generation and so they're more aware of a lot of you know what the social issues that are going on but all this stuff still does happen so it feels like where are we going to meet that line where it finally makes a change just in that younger generation? They're doing it themselves and, right. and hopefully changing for the better. Well, I also think one thing about Rushed that a lot of people have commented on, and I have some really like, listen, I am not hip in any way. I'm the least hip person that, you know, <laughs> I don't know who anybody is. I don't know any music. I went to the 40th SNL with my son and he was, cause I took, take turns with my kids. And they get to each go to one cool thing. Like if somebody went to a premiere, then the next time it's someone else's turn. Yeah. And my husband's great. He's like, let the kids go. If, you, if sometimes it's only like a plus one. So the 40th SNL, I bring my son, Peter. 
And I said, my goal is I'm going to take a picture of them with every single person ever. So, you know, it's like Eli Manning and Jim Carrey and, um, you know, everybody. And so Sandler was my friend, but blah, blah, blah. So Rihanna was like, says to my son, oh my God, is that your mother? She's famous. What was that like? And I was like, Peter, who's that nice girl? And he's like, mom, stop. And I was like, she's like, I loved you in Men in Black. I can't believe you're, what was it like to grow up with a famous mom? I go, oh, I'm telling her. And I go, now what's your name? And she's like, Rihanna. And I'm like, sounds familiar what do you what do you do she's like i'm a singer and oh my gosh you're that singer that rihanna <laughs> oh. <laughs> but anyway yeah well you know it's, it's also interesting too because you've, you've already mentioned it because this is a movie dealing with fraternities in essence and you're you're kind of bringing on your team your own fraternity to help you make this and it is produced by centropa you, and you mentioned how you've worked with lara's uh, venture before and you know, here at Overdue Rentals, we like to talk about films that maybe like, you know, when they came out, they were big. Everybody talked about them, but it seems like Dancer in the Dark, for instance, which was your first uh, trip with Juarez, doesn't really get mentioned as much anymore. And I, I think maybe because a lot of his films become more controversial nowadays, maybe so people kind of glomp onto talking about those. But at the time, yeah, again, just like we were talking about earlier, People always thought of you as, as the comedian, but you had still at that, before that, you'd been in stuff like The Negotiator and other things that have more yes. serious tones to them. I love but, Samuel Jackson, best guy. <laughs> so classy. And I love you and The fuck. Negotiator. I know, and Paul Giamatti, it was, it was, I, I was pregnant too during that. And no one knew it. So I was sitting on the floor, I, you know, when, when I was the hostage, I had to sit on the floor and um, I didn't have to. They said, where do you want to be? Cause it's going to be like for two or three weeks. We're going to be shooting this. And I was like the floor, but then I'm stupid and I put my, I had my arm in the thing. So yeah. I was like, all my blood is running out of my arm. I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna lose my arm because it'd be like this shot after shot. No, but so Lars, Dancer in the Dark, um, A.V. Kaufman cast this film. She took a shot on me. Mm. And because I had done Shakespeare in the park, but I was Phoebe, I wasn't, it was a comedic park. But she's like, you've had training. I was like, I have, but so what? So, but she called me in for this role. And because Bernadette, my daughter, was such a bad kid, she was such a hard child. Like she would be up all night. She was not completely nocturnal. And I'm so not nocturnal. And she had an ear infection. She never slept one that night before that audition. And I went in and I had to cry as a prison guard. And I was always worried about crying. And I sobbed because I was so tired. So yes. Lars, when I went over to Denmark, I just had this feeling like have you ever been to someplace the same thing when I went to Ireland like I'd been there before like I'm like oh, totally related to these people they're so great so we did dancer in the dark and when I flew out of there I looked down at that country and I thought I'm going to be back here I just had this weird sixth sense and then um they called me for Dogville of course I was pregnant again <laughs> and Vivica Vindelov who suggested Vivica Musaya it's the director of my it's a very common name there it's like Mary Kate in the United States or Mary something. <laughs> and and um, she said, we want you to be in Dogville. And I said, I'm pregnant, but then they pushed it. So I went over there with Sinead was 11 weeks old. Mm. Peter was three and um, Bernadette was turned seven there. And Lars is loyal, so are his producers. And then he went back for the house that Jack built. And then when we went to the Cannes Film Festival and went down the red carpet, they said, Siobhan, you have to hold Lars's hand and 
so there I was between Lars von Trier and Matt Dillon. And I was like, I think I, I think I can't believe this. Yeah. <laughs> it was unbelievable. But I modeled, and I modeled this movie, Rushed, the crew, after Lars. I, 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 he knows how to treat a crew. They, they know how to, they know how to have the story be the most important thing. Not like my dressing room doesn't have any flowers in it. You know, uh, who cares? Hmm. So I, I just learned for the best of them. You know what I mean? And those are just such wonderful stories to hear, considering sometimes when a film like Melancholia or Antichrist comes up, he's sort of the agent provocateur of sorts with the press. I think specifically with the press. And it's like, you can, you can kind of tell that he's doing it for certain reasons. And you really don't think that that would transfer over to a film set. And I'm just, I just love hearing that from oh, you and hearing wonderful stories. the best. I mean, and the, and the hours, it's like every Friday you finish at five and every Friday they have champagne and it's great. And let me tell you something else they do. It's unbelievable. So for American actors or actors from other countries, they want you to enjoy their country and Scandinavia. So they're like, you can talk to Pia. Pia will tell you what you could do Saturday or Sunday. Now, Siobhan, you're here with your family. You should take the train to Norway for the weekend. And they arrange everything. It's unbelievable. Nice. They want, they, they're so proud of their country and, and, and their surrounding countries that they want to make sure that when you're there, it's, it's not just, you know, oh, you worked on Tuesday and you did a good job and then you're off for four days and just figure it out yourself. They're like, now you're off tomorrow. What are you going to do? You might want to go to the museum, rent a bike, go to this place for dinner. You go to the place for dinner and you go to pay the bill. And they're like, been taken care of they're the best people well so then first arriving for dancer you you may have not been prepared for that so where did kind of that balance fit out for what you were actually enjoying to this very deep depressing you know story it's crazy when i arrived in denmark i'll never forget it for dancer in the dark i, I would first i went for rehearsal so i left my kids and my husband it's like vacation to me and they take me right to lars's house he answers the door in socks. He had twins. The twins are outside in two strollers. It's cold. It's like 45. And it's like, okay, Siobhan, would you like a drink? And I'm like, oh, no, no, that's okay. I just got off the plane. Are you sure? Because maybe we'd like a whiskey or something. I'm like, no, it's, it's like maybe one or two o'clock there. No, no, that's okay. Okay, we sit down. Siobhan, please have something. I can't take it. I'm too nervous. <laughs> He's like, please, oh. please get comfortable. When I went for the Cannes Film Festival with my family, we land. Cheese, crackers, um, uh, breakfast, chocolate-covered strawberries. Take a nap, then we'll take you to a hotel. They take care of you. So, but what's it like? So Dancer in the Dark, very serious part. And Lars has claustrophobia. And like, so we film in the jail. And he says, now everyone, I just want to announce that when we film this, we cannot lock the door because I have claustrophobia and I will throw up. So, okay. And the way Lars does it, puts the camera on and he has a very gentle voice. So you're going to do the scene. And so you're in the middle of the scene, you're doing your lines. You're like, okay, okay, Siobhan, and start again, start again. And I want you to think about what are we like if she loses her and this is her friend. No, go ahead, go ahead. He's very gentle. He keeps talking, letting the camera run. Um, in Dogville, when, oh, by the way, after that prison scene, I said, by the way, I'd like to make an announcement. I locked the door and Lars, you're cured. And he's like, F you. But I was kidding. I, did, I, did, I didn't lock the door. 
in dog mode, when the, the whole sleep, when we all get shot. So we have to lie on the ground, you know, each in our own space. And I'm lying on, on the ground with my eyes closed. And you're thinking, my God, when are they getting with, with me to the camera? Because Lars is carrying the camera and he's, you know, he's doing this all in a one shot. He's going to Ben Gazzara and he's going to Lauren Bacall and he's going to Paul Bettany. And I'm, I'm thinking, my God, what is he getting to me? He's in socks. I can't hear him. I can't hear him. So then I, it was literally like being at a, at a sleepover when you're a kid, pretending you're asleep and the mother comes in. And I'm like, I think, I think I sense him over me, but I'm not sure. And so I go, and I peek and he goes, Siobhan! <laughs> I ruined the shot. It's, it's interesting because I think there's a misconception, you know, and, and it's partly maybe his fault for the way he communicates with Wait. the press because he, he, he's not trying to say things, I think. I think he just doesn't say in the right way, but I've, I've heard about this from about him and you, you obviously know more than we do, oh. that he's very anxious. Is he, all yeah. he wants to do is care about how you feel about it and he hopes you feel positive about what he puts out. He's hysterical. I sent him a Christmas card after the first year. Hi Lars, Merry Christmas. Hope you have the best, you know, Christmas. I treasure my memories. He writes back on his Lars Von Trier. Dear Siobhan, F you, Lars. <laughs> That's the thing. That is the thing I, I tell- That's his humor. That's his humor. Yeah. Even without knowing him, I because I, I discovered him a long time ago when it was, when, when actually, because it was Zentropa here in the US, when it, the, the film Europa, but he had made, and I, they're finally making a third part to uh, The Kingdom, his five-hour, yeah. uh, two-hour miniseries. Because The Kingdom, I remember, my father and I were in the video store, and we see the box, we're like, what is this? And the description was, like, ER on acid meets Seinfeld. And it's it is the creepiest yet funniest thing at the same time. It's, yeah. It's, it's so amazing. And I don't think people realize how funny he is. Oh, listen. Okay, in the house that Jack built. So I have the scene with Matt Dillon. And, you know, falling all over the place and, and it's very intense and they yell cut and then we just all burst out laughing. Or then they're like, now Siobhan, listen, we're going to pull you out in the, in the bag with the plastic over here by the rope and we're going to pull you out the door. Are you okay with that? I'm like, yeah. So they're, they're pulling me with the rope and I go, oh my God, cut. My ankles are going to come off. So we'd laugh and laugh and laugh. And also I said, Lars, everyone tries to make you into this. I was like, what is it? What is it? I'm like, he's just a regular, hilarious, brilliant guy who's funny. And probably because he doesn't travel, he doesn't have as much exposure. So he's a mystery. So people try to make up things that are really aren't happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's like, I, I can't, I, it's some sort of odd phenomenon with the press that they want to make something there that isn't there. It's the mythos of sort of the the aloof auteur, so to speak, or it's exactly. like, oh, exactly. This must be where he gets his ideas from because yes. it's so vicious and cruel. Yes, yes, could never yes. Be nice. it's so true. Yes. So I, this is actually my first experience with this film. Preparing for this podcast, this was the first time I had seen it. I knew of it, and I think like way back when I might have seen like the last. I think I saw the last five minutes of this before even watching the film. Right. Watching this, I have to know, how did you first react when you got to the end of the story? At, because at, when you, both when you read it in the script and then when you had to shoot that, that heartbreaking scene, because I don't, I mean, I cry during movies. I definitely cry during films, but I was weeping quite a bit 
after watching this, like even like during the, the final, during the credits and ever like that, that afternoon, I was like, I needed to collect myself because it really shook me. Okay. It was so dramatic and sad. And the way the set was, was we were up here and they were down here. And Lars had done a ton of research about the death penalty and it was rough. And Bjork, not being an actress, I think she had a hard time separating herself. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yes. Yeah, for sure. And, um, and, and, and but, but Lars, once again, created a very respectful set. Like everyone, this would be, hard, this would be difficult. So please keep quiet. And the crew, you can be banging around and, you know, that's the way it was. And um, yeah, it was, it was hard. No, like the, the silence in that final, in those final moments are especially what's, what's so tension ratcheting because there's this movie where it's, it's a pseudo musical. And again, right. the preconception of Lars Rontier, you're not thinking, oh, well, he's got a musical in him. I know it's so crazy. Musical from him. I know. And Joel Gray and uh, dancing on yes! Oh my God, it was amazing. Oh. Um, and then what about the song? I had to go to sound studio with Bjork and be like, one, two, three. <laughs> I was like, what? yeah. This is insane, you know? Um, oh, I was gonna say something else. So when Lars and Zentropa decided to co-produce my movie Rushed, I was originally supposed to go over to do the sound, but COVID hit. So I came back from France after editing with Sabina Miliani there. And I was supposed to go March, March 13th to Denmark. Of course, all the planes were canceled. So we did everything by remotely. But I was like, where am I going to stay? My son is coming. And Peter Albeck Jensen was like, Siobhan, you stay on my houseboat with your son. But let me tell you, my daughter's 23. She'll be on the houseboat too. And of course, they all think I'm this crazy big Catholic. And I go, what if I baptize her? I will throw <laughs> you off my boat. This is, this is how but generous they are. They're always like, stay at my houseboat. Vivica Vindelove, the producers of all three movies that I was in there. Stay in my house, Siobhan. I'll be away. They're just the best people. You were just mentioning about going to also record the, uh, you know, the, the one, the two, the 100, yes. 107, 107 steps, 127 steps. Yes. Now I'm forgetting. I feel like it was 100. I can't remember either. 107. I don't know. It's it. steps. <laughs> there you go. But that, that's, again, it's like you, for this kind of special microcosm in the film, because that whole end of the film is, is just, it's almost its own separate short story. Right. Have so much weight. The, the movie technically ends on you because you're the last person we see on screen before it goes to black. Were you even expecting to be kind of that integral, even if you know, even though you saw the script at that point? No. And they had built, it was crazy. They had built a jail cell. So you'd pass prisoners and the, and the camera was right there. And it was like one. So you really felt like this was like what it was like for someone to go to the death, to their execution. And we were, and you could hear the feet like echoing as your prison shoes went click, click, click. And she was a wreck. Oh, and Lars said to me, Siobhan, you know what to do. You need to get her going. So I would like say, I, cause she had a son and I'd say, what's it going to be like when you, you can't see your son ever again? And they'd be like, action. Oh my God. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. 
just precision gut punch. Yeah. So yeah, it was, and it was a great movie. And then I'll never forget when, when I was in New York at the time and, and because I think I was having another child and, and they won the Palm d'Or and I was like, good for them. You know what I mean? Good for, good for Lars, one for the home team. And when I went back, when I went to the Cannes Film Festival for the house that Jack built, Lars was persona non gratis and he was not, he hadn't been to Cannes in seven years. And I'm telling you right now, he had a seven minute standing ovation before the movie started. And mm. when the movie ended, it had to be 10 minutes, just straight. They were like, the French were like, welcome back Lars, I'm sure you're back. <laughs> and it was great. It was really beautiful. It was really touching to see that people can forgive. You know, that's the thing, like you make a mistake and you're really a good person. You said it, you said something that's not a, not a joke or it's not a good joke or it's, or you just shouldn't joke about it. Cause it's a, it's a, it's about a topic that's too sensitive, but then you just, you just crucify them for the rest of their lives. Or do you give people a second chance? Yeah, it's a weird thing now. I talk to my brother about this fairly often because as we come into this point where, look, I'm not gonna, we're not going to get into a whole uh, conversation right, about right, right. culture and all that stuff. But the idea being that it seems like redemption stories can't be anymore. Because yes, people may say some, and I'm talking about people who really have said hurtful, real oh, things. Yeah, yeah. Let's say you talk about some idiot on Twitter who wrote something when they were like in high school or something like that. You know, like if if somebody was already reformed, somebody went to prison for doing something, they come out now, they they help the community and they're an important person, they're an award winner, we don't say anything about it. But if you didn't even get the person the chance to get there, we're yeah. all of a sudden taking that away from people. I know someone who whose kid got in trouble in high school, not here, but from upstate, and and he's trying to like get the law passed that you know you can't just Google someone at 18 years old and wreck them forever. And there has to be a way to get that off, I think. I mean it's a case by case basis for sure. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's true. But um, yeah, but I, I, I mean, the bottom line is I learned so much from Lars and, and so many of the Danish and look, Vivica Messiah directing my movie. I mean, it's crazy. And it, it was like, it was like my house was like the international house of pancakes. I had Matthias Schubert is <laughs> German. I had Sabine was French. I, I had people from all over the place, you know? And, and I mean, I never imagined in my wildest dreams that I was that lucky. And it, this just sort of came to me while we're while we're talking about both films, uh, Rushed kind of follows a similar progression of sorts thematically when it comes to Dancer in the Dark because it starts very much as this different sort of film. Well, I learned from Lars that you keep you keep changing it up so the so you're one step ahead of that audience. You know what mm. I mean? You want to keep one step yeah. ahead. The the next film that I wrote, Shelter in Solitude, which Rush comes out Friday, August 27th. The Shelter in Solitude, we start filming September 27th. Robert Patrick will play the warden in this prison. And it's a prison story. And I never even was thinking about that, that I probably was subliminally or not influenced <laughs> by Lars's movie because it's, it's, it's another, and it's a redemption story because it's a wannabe country singer who ends up being working in a prison because COVID hits and she can't sing anymore. So, you know, um, it, it's interesting how there's so many influences that you they're like, hey, wait a minute, I guess maybe I was in, maybe that's part of, you know what I mean? Because I, I loved the the kind of research that he did about death row in, in the United States. Well, so I, I know I've read it before, I think. I think it's when Dogville came out, you know, because since, like you said, he doesn't travel. He's 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 insanely afraid of flying, if I believe, right? Yes, like, yes. So America to him is like a playground because he can imagine it 
to be what he wants it to be without really knowing about it. That's so cool, really. You know, um, I was telling someone before, like, you know, they're saying, well, um, you know, you've done this, you've done that. And I said, but you know, my family, they would never let, never let you have a big ego because they'd be like, if you thought you were somebody, they'd say, hey, listen, you, knock it off. <laughs> I taught English as a second language, speaking of that, about him thinking America's a playground. And I was in LA and I was in my 20s and I, I, my students were all from South America. And, and it was this whole method that you didn't have to know Spanish. So I sound like I'm bilingual and probably really smart, but I'm not. It was this method that you taught them how to speak English through this method they had. It really didn't work. And um, I one day wasn't going to be there the next day because I was down to the end for the Carol Burnett show. And I said, manana, no, a key, porque, tu conoce, I'm sure this isn't even right, correct it, Spanish, Carol Burnett. And they're like, nope. <laughs> and I was like, and I, was, I idolized Carol Burnett. And the Stella, my, one of my students is like, teacher, who is Carol Burnett? And I thought, I'm such an idiot. You know, you think that we're in this little, this microcosm of the United States, like what we think is popular and cool that everybody else in the whole world does. And I learned at that moment, like, you know, when it's all over and we're all pushing up the daisies, no one, and this isn't taken from Carol, away from Carol Burnett because believe you me, I idolized her and still do. But when you're pushing up the daisies, People don't care what your resume said. They want to know if you're a good person and good to people, mm -hmm. you know? So it doesn't really matter if like, you know, you were, in, you were in a magazine and you're popular and, you know, it's like, I actually, this is kind of sick, but I actually like it when people say bad things about me. Like my, my kids will read those comments on things and filmthreat.com we got a lot, a very good review and, and people make these comments. I didn't even know how to read comments. So my kids are reading, they're like, you know, really good, like great. And you know, blah, 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 positive, 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 one. You see her in the interview, she doesn't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and it struck me so funny. And I was like, it's kind of true. Yeah, but at the same time, you don't want someone to shut up during the interview. Like that would just be really so awkward. It's like, so rushed. And it's like, yeah, it's, Seriously. Well, I, listen, I grew up in a big family, so I don't, I, I'm uncomfortable. I learned this from Sabine Emiliani though. So for, for rushed, she said, now she wanted let me tell you something. Many times silence is much more interesting than like with Robert Patrick in the, in the scene in rushed, he's in that truck. And I learned this now. So for my next movie, I will take more with a silent, moments because sometimes a person can suffer much more in silence than they are when they're talking. Oh yeah. It's just that inability to find those words. And it's yes. just it's really a challenge for an actor or even an audience to interpret that. Mm -hmm. And I am, by the way, I am really glad to hear that you've got another movie coming with Robert Patrick because that the chemistry between the two of you in those scenes, just to piggyback off of Matt earlier, it's just so like, I, I, I can see myself and my wife kind of being like that. It's like, wait, did I remember to do this? Or, oh, don't forget tomorrow. I've, I've got to go to the city for a screening. It's like just that. Oh, I know. Realism versus, oh, good night, babe. Good night. Babe, babe, I know. I remember one time my family went camping. I hate camping so much. and I never went again. But my sister's family are campers. And so they're like, you guys should come. It'd be great. And I, I hated it. I didn't sleep a wink. Everybody else was sleeping. I, I thought, I pictured camping as like being out in the woods. But 
when you go camping, you're like, like your post, you're like number 23 and number 24 is right there. And everybody was smoking pot next to us. And I couldn't stand the smell. It was, I was up all night and they were partying. And at like three in the morning, I'm such a loser. I took the, my big flashlight and I go, come on guys, can we get some sleep? And they just kind of looked at me like, ew, you're old and gross. And I, by the way, I was only like mm. in my forties then. And my kids loved it. My husband loved it. And I was like, it's all about like making me like chop, chop, chop the potatoes, chop, chop, chop. And there was like, let's clean up. And I'm like, what is this? But anyway, my God, my choo-choo train went off the tracks. What was the point of it? Um, the family, I totally forgot what I was saying. <laughs> well, I feel such a kinship with you right now. I just have to say that. <laughs> oh, oh, I know what it was. I know what it was about talking about babe. So afterwards, and you felt filthy. And I was like, I am not taking a shower in that filthy bathroom where there's cobwebs and bugs everywhere. This is horrible. And, and I had one clean outfit left. And my husband wanted to go see his friends that were cool and hip and they called each other babe and we would turn away, they would kiss. So you're thinking, oh my God, my marriage in the, is in the toilet. I can't believe they're so in love. Of course they got divorced after and their kids were all really smart. And like, and my kids were like, literally they would turn their back and they'd be like, punch each other. This is the visit after. But before <laughs> the visit, before the visit, my sister's family was at one end. My nephew played football in high school. I had my last clean outfit on and he goes, my nephew already goes, Archibald. And he takes a watermelon grind and he goes, I can't tell you, he was like Hercules. He goes like this, it goes through there, goes. And it gets to me and it goes dribble, 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 dribble on my shirt. And I was like, oh my God, this is all I have left to clean. And we go to these people's house and they're calling each other babe and kissing. And she was wearing a mini skirt. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so tired from not sleeping. I'm so sunburned. I'm so bitten. I hate, I hate this. I hate my husband right now for making me go here with these good looking people that really kiss and stuff. And of course they got divorced like two years later. And you had to tell her to pull a miniskirt down because she looked like a whore. She looked like a hooker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we got to let you go soon, but I really want to quickly get in because you, you've mentioned it a little bit already, but I, 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 have, to, I have to know, because again, you've done so much stuff and you've been, you've been working with so many amazing people for so long. So it's not like it's abnormal for you to walk onto a set anywhere and, and be, you know, I guess starstruck would say, but it is, you're going to work with Catherine Deneuve, Lauren Bacall, Ben Gazar, like you were saying. It's like, is it, does it become like another level when you're like standing next to those types of people? Totally. Like Ben Gazara, Lauren Bacall. I mean, it's like they're legends. And I went to Lauren Bacall's apartment when she got back. We, I lived close to her at the time. And my husband and I went over there and put my husband like, hey, Lauren, how are you? Because he like knew her from the set. Like, it's so insane. And we're like in her, in her library, which was like being in a museum. I mean, there was John Gilgood was on the wall and Bobby Kennedy. And, and it just, you just, it was, it was so, I can't believe I didn't take pictures. But of course, well, I didn't. But my husband said, she's like, Peter, what would you like? And he was like, you have any good cognac? And she's like, she takes a bottle, she's like, what did this do? And she pours it. I'm like, this is insane. And Ben Gazera, I mean, he was hilarious. Mm. And he's like, drunk. <laughs> What's that brood that you bring around with you everywhere you go? Because my kids, my kids hanging from me. So, but I, and I worked once, but of course I was cut from it with, with Anthony Hopkins. And I, I will tell you, that was the one actor that I said, Anthony, I have to tell you something. I am never starstruck, but I am so starstruck. Mm. And I was like, Thank you. And then I got cut out of the movie. <laughs> Which film was that? Yeah. It was called like, and the guy, the director was lovely, was from Australia. Hope Davis was in it. 
it was like something like rain falling on something. I can't remember the name of it, but look up Hope Davis, Anthony Hopkins. But I, I was supposed to be the babysitter of this little boy, but the boy didn't look enough like whoever played Hope's husband. So it, it, it was cut. Wow. You know, I love, I love though when you tell me that story, because you, you mentioned the people, the pictures on the wall, Norm Bacall's house. And you don't go Bobby Kennedy first, you go John Gielgud. I love that. That's, that's the way it's supposed to go. It was insane. <laughs> Crazy. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was, it was amazing thank to you have you so here. Much. Anytime. And listen, after I do Shelter and Solitude, we got to do it again. We'll be yes. here. Oh, and, and, oh. And, and I, and I want to tell people, make sure they go to on Instagram at rushed movie, Facebook rushed movie, and please go out Friday, get to the theaters. And if you can't get to the theaters, watch it on demand. And thanks a million. I really appreciate it. As a matter of fact, uh, one last thing, uh, the Basie Center Cinemas was t- were talking up your movie and they're like from Rumson's Shabon Hogan. And it's like, yes, I guess you kind of, I guess they kind of abbreviated. So that way it's, it was Shabon Fallon Hogan. Come on, man. Respect. I don't care. I'll go by anything as long as I'll go to, my, go to the movie. You can call you. I remember one time my, my roommate, I'll tell you this really quickly. Her father was a dentist and I was like, hello, Mr. Hirsch. And he goes, you can call me Don or you can call me doctor, but I worked a long time for that degree. If you call me Mr. Hirsch again, I'm going to punch your lights out. And I was like, got it. <laughs> Listen, guys, thanks a million. Thank you. Stay right. safe. Good to see you. Bye. Siobhan Fallon Hogan. Uh, I, I really do. I, I really do look forward to having her back and, uh, why am I blanking on the film right now? Was it Serenity in Solitude or so- Shel- uh, Shelter? Shelter. Shelter in Solitude. Look, I will remember it by the time we do the episode, I swear, because that sounds fantastic. And just wow. Uh, once again, the the overdue rentals counter has found someone with energy akin to ours. And I love that. Yeah, no, and it's I I I was gonna I said it maybe a little too much, I think, because. I think most people do know her from more comedic roles. And so, again, as we mentioned when we talked to her, it's not like Dancing in the Dark was the first dramatic piece she was in. But that, I, I think her getting into the large train really kind of set another tone and availability for her. And while again, while she's been doing all these things, it's great to see her really break out in her own piece. Yeah, and just you know, hearing about the experience that she had and even the lessons that she learned from Lars von Trier's filmmaking, you, the, the, the more that I've thought about it, the more you really do see them exhibited in Rushed. And it's, it really is kind of cool, you know, sort of the, the student becomes the teacher, so to speak, yeah. in, in the way that she's crafted this story. I, I also really appreciate the fact that um, she can go and make a film that while she has emotional connections to, again, it's not like she's lost somebody specifically in this way, but she can write something that is completely non-autobiographical. A lot of times when you see a movie like this, you think somebody has had this happen to themselves or somebody in their family. So for her to go out and create this own piece separate from that, while still having those feelings about what it is to be a mother is fantastic. Yeah. Uh... That's just the power of empathy as well yeah. as the power of filmmaking. And then even just sort of circling back to Dancer in the Dark, she, I, I remember like we were sort of discussing this off camera where it's like, well, you know, if you look at it running time wise, 
She's not a huge part of the narrative. But when you see how crucial she is to that last third of the film, she just has this tremendous performance and this rapport with Bjork. Yeah. That, like, I, like, in the beginning, it's like, oh, okay. Uh, again, the preconception is like, oh, yeah, she's, she's going to show up as a, a prison guard and she'll have a couple. Of, but no, it wasn't just a couple of lines. Like, she has these huge moments with her, like, talking about how Selma thinks she's here and singing and like how they're and the silence in that block and even just the legal process that she's going through. Yeah, I mean, even even though the Catherine Deneuve character still is her friend and there to support her, it's almost as a Brenda is the name of the guard, yes. is really her only friend by the end of the film. It's the only it's the only person who's actually trying to do anything in care for her and worry about her. And it's it's it it, it's, it, it kind of speaks volumes. Yeah, especially when, you know, at the end of this film, someone makes this big decision that seals her own fate, but it really is in service of her son. And this character is just so caring and kind. And the film is basically the story of this person who gives so much to the world. And she doesn't ask for much in return, but she really doesn't get much in return. Yeah, oh, and it's, it's funny too, because the one thing even though we did get in some, some, not necessarily unnecessary, but while we did get into some social, socio-political uh, talk with, with Siobhan, the one thing that we didn't bring up is the fact that Dance in the Dark is so strangely relevant now with the immigrant, um, the way that all of a sudden immigration has become again, or it always was, I guess, for certain people, become again such like the hot button issue that, you know, it, it really is almost like, did they did they know this was going to be what it's like today because we've just kind of come full circle i think it was a story that was crafted based on human nature alone mm. and that's probably why even if things were in a better state right now it would still be very much relevant and another really interesting thing about my my experience with this film is it starts on an overture Mm -hmm. It starts on yeah. that beautiful, beautiful music, and I felt it. Well, like, I'm listening to it, and it's just, I'm, I'm, my heart kind of swells a little bit, and it's like, I think I'm going to like this movie just by this alone. And then the movie ends with the overture, it turns into New World. Yeah. And yeah. Lars von Trier kind of, and, and, and Bjork, because I believe she wrote, I don't remember if she wrote just the music or and someone I think she wrote the music and then Lars von Trier and a co-writer wrote the lyrics. He 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 added in lyrics and, and, yeah. and had some say in certain of them. Yes, but she did write, yeah. New World breaks Selma's rule because she has that that cute little rule. She's like, I I would always leave musicals before the last song because then they wouldn't end. Yeah. You can't leave before that song because it's the redemption of her damn character. And it's almost like the postscript where it's like. It's a happy ending of sorts. And I'm, I'm kind of just, yeah. Plus, that's also, I mean, talking about the, the opening with the visuals of the Overture too as well, that's a lot of things that people have also have now forgotten about Lars Van Trier because back then it was all about the idea that he was one of the writers of the Dogma, 90, Dogma 95, uh, you know, way of filming, which is supposed to be all handheld, all natural light. And yes, that existed within Dance in the Dark as the film and that existed in Breaking the Waves, but people forget about Breaking the Waves because again, to him, it was a, it it wasn't supposed to be a doctrine you you just follow for the rest of your life and for everything. It, it was just kind of this 
this idea at the time. Because remember, people forget in Breaking the Waves that it was chapter by chapter and each chapter began with the most gorgeous cinematography of just what would be like the moving image of almost a still image of like an ocean with the waves breaking with, there was, uh, uh, um, Prokel Harum was playing and, and all these different songs playing over each one. And it's like, they forget all of the amazing things that he would be doing outside of that in that time period in his films. Sorry, I get lost because again, I'm, I've been a Lars von Trier fan before he was a he was a controversial filmmaker, quote unquote, in in the, in the public yeah. eye. And Which hopefully we've helped dispel that notion on overdue rentals here. Eventually, we will get to the point where we're going to talk to somebody about it. Was again it was, here in America at the time it was known as Entropa, and otherwise else was known as Europa. They they changed the name because at the time the film Europa Europa was yeah kind of coming out, so they didn't want people to get confused. They called it Entropa here, and his production company is Entropa. Uh, my, my Criterion edition, though, is does say they change up the Criterion does say Europa. It's somewhere behind me here. I can't find it. Anyway, that film, that's when it came to modern foreign films. That movie changed my life. So, I, I and, and we talked about during the interview also the Kingdom, which had a five-hour miniseries, then a second part five-hour miniseries, and was supposed to be he was going to do. A, a series each year up until the millennium. But unfortunately, Ernst Hugo Goddard died during, um, before they would commit the third one, but now he's coming back and he is doing a third one. And there's some, oh God, man, like I said, people, if you've never seen that, you gotta go, the, the, the first one is both the scariest and funniest thing I've seen in my entire life. And that's also, again, I know he based it off some of his, I'm sorry, I'm going on a rant here, Mike. I know he's, Matthew, I'm not lost, Von Trier. I know he, I know he based, some of it on his own experience by getting hit by a car, being in the hospital, but Stephen King's The Kingdom Hospital was inspired by The Kingdom. Oh, yes. Oh, I, 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 I actually knew that. And for anybody, and I'm not going to ruin anything, even by telling you what happens at the very end, but to see a movie, to see a movie or a miniseries, whatever you want to call it, where a woman gives birth to a full-size Udo Kier at the ending, how can you not love it? I'm all, I already love it right now. But with that, Mike, I with think the I image think went, of a full-size Udo Kier being birthed into the world from a woman. I think I went a little too far on the, on this part of the discussion. Ah, so I think we should. I think we should. Let, I think we should let people go so that they can now watch these movies. But before they do that, Mike, where can they find us? Well, that's a very good question because on Twitter you can find us at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook and TikTok at Overdue Rentals on Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show, and through the email handle overduerentals at gmail.com. Don't forget to send us your recommendations, uh, fan letters, anything you really want to send us as long as it's not horrible and, and obscene. And if it's obscene, at least let it be funny, not non-threatening. But yeah. Uh, also, you can find our show wherever you get your fine podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, leave some reviews, leave some star ratings. You know, we, we hope you like us as much as we like you. And we really like you, the audience. So go make sure you cross off Dancer in the Dark from your overdue renters list. Make sure you buy your tickets to go see Rush this weekend. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.